You guys are all right. Anybody hot beside me? I am roasting. I'm wearing shorts from now on. <laughs> Man. Oh, it feels a lot better down here. Them lights up there are hot. If you have your Bibles with you, you open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to continue our journey through 1 Thessalonians. And uh, <laughs> as we take a look at it, there's something that I, wa- I want to share with you. Um, remember as we look at this book, excuse me for a second. Oh, man. Nothing like an ice cold monster to get you going. It might, yeah. Uh, anyway. <clears throat> the book written, and as we study uh, on the church of Thessalonica, remember that Paul started this church in a ministry that only lasted three days. Three day, or I'm sorry, three weeks, three weekends, three messages. He's going to teach, he's going to lay it out, and then he's going to get chased out of town. They're going to have to put him in a, in, a, in a special escape route and send him to Berea. So he doesn't get to spend any more time there. But the messages that he shared, the spark that was ignited, took hold. It took hold. Paul's heart was always to try to get back to them. But we'll see tonight as we take a look that it, he wasn't able. He's going to say that Satan hindered him. Every time he tried to, to head that way... There was some kind of roadblock, something that stopped him from being able to go back there. Yet this church, a year later, a year after Paul been there, is burning pretty bright. I mean, they're not perfect. Not any, not any of us are. They got issues, and we'll get to them in a couple of chapters. But as we take a look tonight at what Paul lays out for us, he's going to kind of give us an outline, really, of what church leadership ought to be about. What, a, what church leadership ought to have as its goal, what its focus ought to be, how it should be directed. And, and I was reminded as we're taking a look at some of the leadership that he's going to talk about, there's a Jews for Jesus put together a list of what most churches would say about the leaders that God picked for them. So I thought I'd share it with you. First one is Noah. Well, Noah preached for 120 years, but he had no converts. This indicates a credibility gap. Besides a, 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 besides a certain account that seems to indicate he had a drinking problem. So Noah didn't make the cut. Abram or Abraham. We find it odd that he has two names. Is he using it as an alias? If so, why? Also, we learn that he has stooped to bending the truth when it suits his purposes. Another matter we must question is whether he is the head of his own household. His wife laughs when he has a conversation with God, and she also likes to take charge of a matter before God acts on it. If Abram and his wife would agree to take some personal counseling and also some marriage counseling, he might work out at a later time. Abraham didn't make the cut either. Moses. Now, we were impressed with Moses except for two severe problems. He's been known to lose his temper once in a while. Furthermore... While he seems to have the necessary perseverance for preaching, his stuttering and stammering would defy all speech therapy. He's not going to work out. David. Now, so far as David is concerned, he seems rather talented in writing music, even poetry. 
But we don't know if he can preach. Worse yet, he's had a few moral lapses. We could not have him as a pastor, but perhaps at a later date when the church can afford it, he could be considered a part of the worship team. Solomon, like David, he spends much too much of his time writing. And besides, he has a lavish lifestyle and too many dependents. Our church wouldn't be able to afford the salary. Elijah, regarding Elijah, no one can doubt that he's a powerful preacher. Nonetheless, the sarcasm he sometimes employs, is it really necessary for this day and age? Also, we cannot overlook the fact that he has a tendency toward self-pity. Elijah doesn't make the cut. Isaiah, now there's a person who's well thought of, but there seems to be a serious PR problem. Can you imagine a preacher who upon meeting God, instead of addressing him politely, says, woe is me? If Isaiah greeted people in our church that way, no one would ever feel welcome. Isaiah's out. Jeremiah, now we need an upbeat preacher for our church. One who can make people happy. We feel unanimously that Jeremiah would be way too depressing in any church position. Matthew, now his background is finance, not religion. He would probably preach like an accountant, and we would get too many sermons on stewardship. Matthew's out. Luke, again, his background is not religion, he's a doctor. It seems strange that he would leave a lucrative profession unless something unsavory had occurred in his past. And in his practice of medicine, Luke's out. John the Baptist. Now, he is certainly a good preacher and he gets good results. But he dresses just a little bit strange. And worse than his lack of pulpit decorum, he eats very strange things. How are we going to be able to describe to the church body when he brings honey-dipped locusts in for the church potluck? No, John the Baptist is not going to work out. Well, Peter. Peter seems to show leadership, but the last thing we need is a preacher who carries a sword around. It's likely to take take off and just go fishing at the drop of a hat. Smells like fish most of the time. We could not have him as pastor, but maybe we could undertake his partial support as a part-time missionary to fishermen. Paul. Now, Paul is reputed to be a great preacher, but he's... He is very moving. He's always moving from here to there to there. He's not going to stay around very long. I don't think Paul would work out for us. The reality is if we consider how leadership within the church is viewed within the body, that's not too far from a truth of what people would say about you know one person or another. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, He's going to give us a little bit of a description on what church leadership is all about. And he's going to lay it out for us so that we can recognize the qualities that we want. Because the bottom line is, folks, we want to affect our our city for Jesus Christ. And we need to be upstanding men and women of the community. The Bible says we are to be above reproach, willing to step out and... And fill the void where God's calling us to go. And sometimes, the way people in the city look at us will be like that. The good news, the power of the Holy Spirit can overcome all of those things. And give us an opportunity to affect people's lives. Now as we take a look at 
at 1 Thessalonians, I want to remind you, as we look at it, really the key verse and, and uh, the outline for the book can be found in verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and of our Father. <clears throat> really, when we take a look at this book, it's going to break down this way. Well, listen, the Bible talks about this this triad, doesn't it? Faith, hope, and love. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We see over and over again in the scriptures and in the epistles, these three brought together. Well, hopefully I can help you get a grasp for how faith, hope, and love work in our life. For example, if we look at faith as that which touches our past, that we have faith in the things that have happened in the past, if we look at it as faith is looking back and hope is looking forward and love is right now. So when we consider that, we, we kind of put that in our mindset as a little bit of an outline. We're going to see that he's going to talk about their past, his past with the church of Thessalonica. He's going to talk about the work of faith, chapters 1 through 3. The beginning of chapter 4, he's going to talk about right now. He's going to talk about their labor of love, where love is right now in the present. And then in the second half of chapter 4 and 5, he's going to talk about their hope for the future. Faith, hope, and love. How is it going to break down for us tonight as we take a look? Well, as we look, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Listen, there were people saying, now what good did Paul's visit really do? I mean, he's only there for three weeks. He only shared three messages. I mean, did he really have anything to do with what was going on in that place? But when we read about it in Acts chapter 17, you see the whole church rally around Paul's willingness to be a vessel that God wanted to use. He would go to the synagogue. He'd go to where the people were and he would look for an opportunity to share. And he would share as long as they would hear him. And when they didn't want to hear him anymore, he didn't, it didn't break his heart. He went to people who would hear him. Hearing a no or, or seeing a door shut, that didn't upset Paul. That just meant it's time to go in another direction. In fact, we even read about Paul one time shaking the dust off his coat, saying, fine. If you don't want it, I'll go to the next group of folks. I'll go share. So Paul's saying, listen, it's not in vain, folks. It's not in vain when we share the word. There's no such thing as, well, that didn't work out very good. I tried to share, but they weren't receptive. I tried to to speak, but it didn't work out. Don't let that weigh heavy on your heart. Remember what the word teaches us. When Samuel was the prophet of God's people, before they had had any kings, the people came to Samuel and said, you know, we want to be like everybody else. We don't want to have a prophet and hear from God. We want a king. And Samuel was all depressed. And he went to the Lord. You remember what the Lord said? The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me. And when we share the word, we we shouldn't take it 
as a, as a personal affront to us that someone didn't want to receive or was deaf to it. Remember, hold on to the promise of Isaiah. When Isaiah said, God's word will always accomplish that to which it is sent. It's always going to do it. So he says it's not in vain. And we want to be those who are going to be out in front, stepping up in front of the church, moving forward in all that God wants us to do. We need to realize it's not in vain. It's not in vain, our coming and our preaching and our sharing. But even after we had suffered before, in verse 2, and were spitefully treated at Philippi. You guys remember Philippi, right? That was the whole Philippian jailer. Remember, they were in the darkest dungeon, midnight. They're singing praises to the Lord. The most incredible part of that story, if you ever go to a prison and throw all the doors open, what are the odds of all the prisoners just hanging out? They're going to run down to solitary confinement because they heard a dude down there singing. No, that's not going to work, is it? You see, the witness that Paul and and Silas had was so incredible, not because of their own strength, but why? Because of the joy of the Lord. Those guys knew. They're like, man, all I know is them dudes. I can hear them. They have something I don't have. And I want it. So though they were treated shamefully at Philippi, did God bring about the harvest? Did they, did they have increase? Sure, the church in Philippi was born as a result. And they're going to leave Philippi and head over to Thessalonica. And he's going to have the same results there. So though they were treated shamefully at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in God to speak to you the gospel of God, even in much conflict, even though... Things aren't easy. God wants us to share. Even though it's not always comfortable. You ever been in an uncomfortable spot? Oh, Lord, how do I get out of this? I can't believe I got myself in this situation. But yet they were what? Strong in Him, in God. They trusted in Him. Didn't God lay out for us in the book of Acts... Doesn't he tell us in the scripture, hey, guys, don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. Trust in me and I'll give you the words. And I've seen God do that time and time again. Pastor Gerald used to share a story with us about being a a pastor in Kansas and, and receiving a phone call one night that while a couple had been out and they had left their baby with the babysitter, their dog had killed their baby. Now, when you get that phone call, there's not like a file with a speech on what to say to make people feel better. You just rely on the Lord. And God gives you the words. He gives you the utterance, what to speak. That's what the Lord did for Pastor Gerald. For Kathy and I, we we got a, a, a note one time of some pretty close friends of ours had just run over their baby one year old there's nothing that you can say about that you just go and in the love of the spirit you reach out to them and you do whatever god directs you to do and it may be in much conflict and it may not be comfortable but we can always trust that god's going to do what he says he's going to do we can trust in him and this is what paul's laying out for them hey guys Remember all these things in our history. 
Remember to have faith because look at what God's done in the past. He's met these needs. He's fulfilled these requirements. He was with us in Philippi. He's going to be with you now. Consider all the ways that God touches your life. He goes on in verse 3, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So he's saying, listen, leadership, guys, in leadership cannot be all caught up in, in falsehood and deceit. It's got to be all about the truth. Ephesians tells us uh, to speak the truth in love. Don't forget that last part, because it's the part that makes it all work out. You can speak the truth without love. That's brutality. You can speak love without the truth. That's hypocrisy. You've got to speak the truth in love. Remember what Paul wrote in Corinthians to the, to, the, to the people at Corinth. He said, hey, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, it is a clanging symbol. It's racket. It's no good without love. That's, everything's got to be tempered in love. So he's laying out, not in error, not in uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. He's focused on, hey, when we came, the exhortation, our building up of the church there in Thessalonica, it was all about the truth. It wasn't about all falsehood. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. We've been entrusted of God with the gospel. And to whom much is given, much is required. We have a... a Wow, it's a freedom here. We experience something here that a lot of people in the world don't get to experience. You can grab the Word of God anywhere, anytime, anyhow. You can pick whatever translation you want. You can have it, whatever makes you happy. But I've been in places in the Amazon jungle where the pastors down the Amazon River literally took one Bible and each of them tore out a book. And they would teach out of that book, and then they would pass it down the river. And they would have this little circuit where they would pass this one book. Because they had one Bible in the whole region. So we enjoy that freedom. But to whom much is given, much is required. We want to be those who are going to share it. Though it has been entrusted to us, we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So we share, so we lay it out, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. We don't ever want to to lay out God's word as man pleasers. We don't want to lay out God's word on what we think the, the popular vote of the body is going to be. If I teach it like this, everybody will like it. That's not what it's about. It's about teaching the truth. Whether it's popular or not. Not as men pleasers, but as God pleasers. God sees your heart, right? He knows. You, you have an opportunity to share with someone, the thought will pass your mind about how you can soften something or, or how you might skirt around an issue. But God doesn't want us to do that. He wants to lay us out. He wants us to lay it out pure. Just like how the Lord gave it to us. Listen, and if you hold your fingers there and, and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, we, we can read about God calling Jeremiah the prophet. 
in, uh, in verse 4, it says, So the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. You know what that tells us? God had a plan for Jeremiah before he was born. God has a plan for you. God has a call for you. God has a road for you to walk that he wants you to walk. And I said in verse 6, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth. For you shall go to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. He says, Jeremiah, be faithful to the word that I give you. Be faithful to what I lay out before you. And then he says, do not be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Don't be afraid of how they look at you. Now, for Jeremiah, his life was a bit of a drag. Jeremiah was a hated prophet. No one ever wanted to receive his word. You know why? Here's what his word was. The Babylonians are coming. Remember, we just studied the book of Daniel. When the children of Israel went into captivity of Babylon, Jeremiah said, the Babylonians are coming. God said, don't fight. Put down your sword. They're going to win. Just go with them. Now, let's say we were at war with, say, Iraq. And God gave a message to his prophet to tell the United States of America not to fight, not to battle, lay down arms, and let the enemy have them. What would the rest of the country look at that fellow as? Yeah. Yep. And that's how they looked at Jeremiah. And the people rejected his word. And he said to them, Listen, God told me, if you go and fight, people are going to die. If you listen to me, everyone's going to live. And then some other prophet, self-proclaimed, would stand up and say, Oh, don't listen to him. God's going to deliver them into our hands. And for his entire ministry, he was hated. Nobody ever paid attention to Jeremiah. And God's people went into captivity anyway. And a lot of people died that didn't need to die. So when Jeremiah finished his book, he wrote another one called Lamentations. As he wept over the wasted lives of his people who wouldn't receive the word of God that was entrusted to him. And God said to Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. He said that to them because they were going to hate him. Don't be afraid of them, Jeremiah. Don't be a man pleaser. Be a God pleaser. The most important thing that we'll ever come to understand is where has God called me? Hey, within the body, folks, you come to me and say, Jackie, I want to do something for the church. I can find a hundred things for you to do. I work you straight into the grave. But the important thing is, what, God, what has God called you to do? 
What are you called to be a part of? And when you're called, like Jeremiah was called, Jeremiah one day said, you know what, God, forget it. I'm done. I don't ever want to say another thing to another person. They all hate me following you. Everybody hates me. I got no kind of life. Forget it. I'm done. And then the word of God burned in his heart like a hot poker. And he said, I can't be silent. I got us. I got to share what God's given me. The church today needs Jeremiah's. Needs people that aren't afraid of their face. Willing to make a stand for God. Willing to share the truth. Willing to do so because it's their call. Not willing to do so because they came on a Sunday night and Jackie made them feel guilty. It's about a call. Are you called? Is that your call? Are you a Jeremiah? Are you one to go out like he did? If so, then fulfill your calling. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Step out and allow God to do his perfect work. Trust him and allow him to fulfill it. Don't be a man pleaser, but a God pleaser. He goes on in this concept also. He says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words. What's flattering words? Manipulation. You remember flattering words. Flattering words is when you say something to somebody to get them to do what you want them to do. I'm sure none of us have ever done that. But he says, hey, part of being that solid leader, that solid teacher, that solid worker in the, in the harvest field is don't use manipulation. Not flattering words. Not words of manipulate or to guide or to, or to force people to do certain things. Or, nor does he say a cloak for covetousness. As God is witness. Not to use a cloak as covetousness. Listen, in Second Chronicles chapter 18, we're told a story about Jehoshaphat. I won't go there and read it to you. I'll just give you the, uh, the uh, Jackie paraphrase. In the Jackie paraphrase, Jehoshaphat, trying to follow the Lord, gets a call from this wicked king named Ahab. Maybe you've heard of him. And Ahab says, Jehoshaphat, you want to come help me fight these, these bad guys? And so <clears throat> Jehoshaphat prays, Lord, should I go? And, and the Lord seems to tell him, yeah, go ahead. So Je- Jehoshaphat goes and Ahab says to him, hey, Jehoshaphat, thanks for coming. Here, I'm going to give you my robe. Will you wear my robe in the battle? And Jehoshaphat's like, yeah, okay, I'll wear, your, I'll wear your cloak. And then, as soon as the battle started, it says all the enemies came after him. Because he was dressed up like somebody he wasn't. Now, fortunately, he cries out to the Lord and God delivers him. And they figure out that he's not Ahab. And they end up getting a hold of Ahab anyway, because that was... God's judgment in that. But you see, Jehoshaphat was wearing something he had no business wearing. Don't try to wear something that belongs to somebody else because when you do, it's always going to be wrong because you're being something that you're not. A cloak of covetousness. Wanting what someone else has so you wear what they have and it just doesn't work. Hey, Who you are in Christ is all the Lord needs. Who you are. 
Not who someone else is. You don't have to be someone else. You don't have to be like one person or the other. You just need to be you submitted to the Lord. You just need to be you committed unto Him. And when you do that, when you're, when you're just yourself, well, there's no end to what God can do for your life because now you're fulfilling the call that God has on you. We don't need everybody to dress up like everybody else and say, oh, look at this. I'm putting on, you know, my, my Fritzy cloak. I put on my cloak of Fritz. Now, it wouldn't be very long if I put on my Fritz cloak and I went and stood up there and grabbed his harmonica. You'll figure out that I'm not Fritz. Because it just sounds like a bunch of racket when I blow on that thing. I'm not Fritz. He is called to be who he is. We're not to come and to go forward in a cloak of covetousness. We're to go forward covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and be who I am. God knew what I was when he called me. Now, he won't leave me like this. He's going to continue to grow me up and he'll continue to grow you up. But he doesn't want you to be somebody else. He wants you as you. And that's what he's talking about here. We didn't come with a cloak of covetousness. We didn't come dressed up like somebody else. I came to you like Paul. I'm just Paul. Some people like me, some people don't. But that's the way he came. And it says in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Hey, Paul's a pretty big wig. You know, I mean, if he was here today... Places that he spoke, they put his name up on a billboard. Hey, the Apostle Paul's here. But Paul says, we never sought glory from men. We want to be able to be those who are ready to go forward to experience, you know, the kind of a harvest that Paul had in, in three weeks of reaching out to the Thessalonians. And hey, we got to understand, what, how did Paul do it? It wasn't for his glory. Man, once in my life, I went out full force for my glory. All the glory I could get. It was a Christmas play. <laughs> Joshua Springs. And at the Christmas play, man, people came from everywhere. That place would pack out. And in those days, they didn't have the new sanctuary built, so it kind of filled up. But it, would, it was <clears throat> probably about this size, the sanctuary, maybe just a shade longer and people were in every seat and all the way down the wall and across the back and down the other side, <clears throat> standing up for the Christmas production. Everyone coming, newspapers there, ready to take a picture. Guess who kicks the whole thing off? That's right. It's me. I got my fire engine red electric guitar. And I have a blazing solo that kicks the whole thing off. The whole thing starts on my solo. And I practice that solo forever. I never play it anymore. Not even one note. The song that I was leading into is What Child Is This? As a joke, Pastor Gerald for the next 10 years makes me do that song every Christmas time. So here comes the solo, and I'm thinking, wait till they see this. Man, they're going to want to put my name up in lights. I might get a record contract or something. And so it begins, and it's going pretty good. 
And then something weird happens. It's like I totally forget the entire guitar. What am I doing here? And I hit a note that was, well, the best way to describe it is wrong. (laughs) Now, I had a lot of friends in the band, and I had told them, just in case, guys, if something goes wrong, don't just leave me burning on stage. Somebody throw a bucket of water on me. If I just start to crash, start playing and I'll come in with you. But you know what they did? I was standing behind the whole row of them. They're all standing up there. The, the guy who was playing the piano was a stand-up deal he had and singers beside him. And this is what they did. I'm behind them and they went like this. And they just stood there. Now, <laughs> my mind totally went, it was gone. I couldn't remember anything. All I could remember was a pentatonic scale. So I went into a blue scale to try to salvage it. And I'm thinking along the way, okay, okay, okay. If what child of this starts in, in a minor key, I got to come back to, to the right note. If I come back to the right note, they'll think that was kind of weird, but I could salvage the whole thing. I was that close. But anybody who plays guitar knows if you're that close, you could be a long ways off. And I missed it. And that note rang out. Boom. And it just echoed into silence. And the people that were there looking at me, flames shooting off all over me. I'm on fire. They just looked at me, turned around. Started playing What Child Is This? And I went through that song, put my guitar in the stand, and went to the green room and curled up in a fetal position and was rocking there. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Pastor Gerald comes to me and goes, Oh, Jackie, it'll be okay. Don't worry about it. I'm I'm never playing a guitar again. I'll never do that Well, there was two productions that night, so I had to get up and do the second one. But he, he was able to talk me into going up, at least up on stage, and pretending like I, I was playing the guitar. But, but it was rough. Well, what was the whole point? I was seeking my glory. God's got a way of humbling us when, when the thing becomes about us. Because it wasn't me what died on the cross for us. And, and I'm not the main thing. And we each have to realize it's not about how this makes me look. Paul would say, hey, I'll be a fool for Christ. But I don't care what people think of me. I'll be a fool so that he, he's able to increase. I wanted the name of Jesus Christ in lights. Not my name. So Paul says, hey, if you want to be solid in leadership, moving forward, looking for that opportunity for the harvest field to allow God to bring forth a mighty harvest. And what's he saying? Can't be seeking your own glory. It's not about you. Not from men or from you or from others. When we might have made demands as the apostles of Christ. So Paul came in humility. But we were gentle among you. Now he's going to give us two examples here. We were gentle among you as a nursing mother cherishes her own children how does a nursing mother cherish her own 
children. Well, it's funny because a nursing mother doesn't really demand anything. But she is dependent on for everything. Nursing mom doesn't get to say, hey, this is what's going on. Because when little junior, when it's time for little junior to eat, she is the bottle. She is the one who is able to provide that nourishment. She's the one, and she wants to, to, to connect with her child, to, to hold that baby, to comfort that child. There is nothing like a mother's love. Every one of us, one time or another, had an opportunity to experience that ourselves with our own moms or those who came along beside us in our life that were able to, to help us, to cherish us in the same way. He says, I came to you as a loving mother, not as a demanding apostle. I loved you. I cared about you. And what is it that he cared about? I cared that you were fed. Paul would build on the concept, right? That we, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we desire the pure milk of the word. That word of God sustaining us. Even as Jesus said, I am the bread of life. <clears throat> when Jesus was in the wilderness, remember Satan came to him and he said, Hey, Lord, you're kind of hungry. Turn these rocks into bread. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds <clears throat> excuse me, out of the mouth of God. Amen. And so, that bread that sustains us, Jesus Christ, God the Word, the Word of God, Breathed into us, spoken through us, equipping us, raising us up. And so having that desire to share that is like a loving mother desiring to take care of her nursing baby. And verse 80 builds on the concept. So affectionately longing for you. Literally, he's talking about a consuming love. So affectionately longing. Kathy when she went to the pastor's wives retreat, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, she got to be with my son when his uh, first uh, baby was born, his little girl. We had pictures of her up on the screen. But Kathy just, when she come home, I, I think she could describe consuming love like no other. Because it's like you just wanted this affectionate longing to hold that baby. To, to see that baby, to, to desire to just, you know, throw your, your arms around her. And for those of us who have experienced that in our own children, it was like that. When me and Kathy had kids, you get the idea, we're going away. Woohoo! Won't have to see them little rugrats and all they're screaming and fighting, man, I can't wait. But you're not gone for very long before you're like, oh, wonder how they're doing. Maybe we should give them a call. Hey, I remember I was in Peru one time for three weeks and coming home from Peru and was all excited to see Kathy. So, so you know, I'm hugging on Kathy and kissing on Kathy. And then I go, okay, let's go see the kids. Because I, I wanted to see Joe and JC and Cole. I had stuff for them from Peru and I missed them. This is what Paul's talking about. This affectionate longing, this consuming love. <clears throat> that says, man, I want to be here. I want to, to be able to put my arms around. I want to be able to guide and lead and share. Look what he says. We were well pleased to what? Impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. 
because you had become dear to us. He had, they, that longing that we feel for our children just to be with them was his longing to be with the brethren, the people who he had been their spiritual father, if you will, that he had led to the Lord and, and that were developing this church. Man, that was his desire to be with them. Hey, when you're called of God, if you're called of the Lord to serve in Sunday school or to serve in youth group or to serve in, in worship, you're going to understand that because it's like, man, I just, I just got to be a part of this. I just love those kids in Sunday school. I just love the little ones that God's given me. I just love that opportunity to enter into God's throne room with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. God gives us that, and that's what Paul had. You may not have it like Paul did for the Thessalonians, but where you have that, that's where the Lord's leading you. That's where God's directing you. That's where God wants to share, not only to just impart the gospel, but we pour out our lives. Hey, folks, if we don't pour out our lives in the next generation, it's not very long, and, and this place will just be empty. And the Spirit of God will have to do a new thing because God's people weren't willing to pour out their lives. We're supposed to pour our lives into them. Not just the good news of God's Word, but to really share. So He calls us first to be like a loving mother. <clears throat> Verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, but we preach to you the gospel of God. Hey, they took care of themselves. They didn't want to be a burden on anybody else. They weren't trying to be a burden. They just wanted to bring the word. Now, he's only there for three weeks. When he's there for three years, it's a little bit different. But he's there for three weeks. Hey, I'm not trying to put a burden. I'm not requiring anything from you as an apostle. I'm coming as a loving mom. When my mom comes and she stays and she helps take care of the kids, at the end, she don't write out a bill and set it down on the table and say, hey, that's what you owe me. Huh. She just does it. Why? Because she loves pouring out her lives to her kids. And this is what Paul's, this is the concept that Paul's building on. Hey, that's what he loves to do. He says in verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed. And you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So the first example he gives us is a loving mother. Now he's going to turn to a father. Exhorting, comforting, and charging as a father. Exhorting is to build up. And every father for their, for their children wants to build them up. We as dads all want our kids to be better than we were, not just like us. And probably if we had an opportunity when our kids come alongside and said those famous words to us, Dad, I, just, I want to be just like you. And we say, well, no, that's not, that's not what I'm going for, son. I, I'd like you to be better. I want you to be better than me. So we want to exhort. Fathers are called also to comfort. To comfort. There's nothing quite like a dad's comfort, especially for a boy. And in our world today, there are a whole lot of boys that could use dad's comfort. 
You know, they're, they're, the comfort they get is moms. And they need some from dad. Because dads can comfort like nobody else. He come up and he say, hey, well, dust off your, your jacket. Stand up out that dirt. Let's go after it again. Anybody can quit. Let's move on. Let's push on. When I was coaching football, I coached football for about 10 years. And the last three years, I, I brought onto my staff a hug coach. She was actually the academic coach. She was one of the teachers at the school. But she liked to call herself the hug coach. Because when them kids would come off the field and get an earful from coach, they'd go over to her and she'd give them a hug. <laughs> now... What was required of them hadn't changed, but that's the difference between father's love and a mother's love. A father's love is going to continue to raise that bar. Come on, come on, come on. Mom can come alongside and hug and say, honey, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it, but dad's the one who's going to push him to excel. Keep moving forward. Keep stepping up. But you miss that in, the, in kids today. They don't have that. Not very many kids got a dad at home. <clears throat> they got a dad for the weekends. Not quite the same thing. It's not quite like it was when, when many of us grew up. He says, I, I want to minister to you like a father. I want to exhort you, build you up, comfort you, and finally, he says, charge you. Now, this is what dads do better than anybody else. See, when you, when you look into the meaning of charge, to be charged by your father... It means to have dad lay out for you or testify his life experience. Oh, you remember those, right? Son, let me tell you. Back in the day, we had to walk to school barefoot over snow and glass uphill both ways. You remember all them stories from dad, right? Well, we laugh about those, but that's the concept. That dad is sharing his life experience with his son and charging him, hey, go forward. Keep going. See, this is what Paul is saying about ministering the gospel to the Thessalonians. He says, I come to you as a mother longing to be with you and to, and to just share the love of God with you, but also as a father to build you up, to comfort you, and to say, come on, let's go. Like a coach saying, I know you can do it. I believe in you. Get back in there. Try again. Move forward. That's that concept of being charged, that the father would charge. Even as a father does his own children. Verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God. That means that you would walk of equal weight. That concept, to walk worthy, means when you put God in one side of the scales and you put yourself in the other side, it's equal. We're to walk worthy. We're to try to walk of equal weight with God. But in this world, in the world in which we live, quitting so easy. Well, I just can't do it, so forget it. I am not even going to try. Man, I get tired of hearing that. What do you mean you ain't going to try? Walk worthy. Step up. Say, hey, I'm gonna, I, want, I know what God is like. I know what God's done for me. Now I need to be like him. 
This is what he's saying. Walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthy with what God has given to you. Walk worthy with what God has bestowed upon you. For this reason, verse 13, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. When they brought the word, they received it. That first word received means they accepted it. It's intellectual assent. They agree. Oh, yeah, that's good. But then that word, they welcomed it. It means literally they let it into their heart. It became a part of their life. That is exactly what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 6 when he said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. It has to become a part of us. When we consume God's word, it becomes a part of us. We sit down and eat, that food becomes a part of who we are. It goes into our body and becomes a part of us. This is what he's talking about here. You receive the word, intellectual ascent, but you also made the other 18 inches to the heart. Not just saying, yeah, that's good, but man, I am applying, I'm applying that word. I'm welcoming it, <clears throat> not just as a word of men, but as a word of God. Do you know, no matter how boring or stupid my message is, that God's word still has relevance for you? That the word that we read still has a purpose in your life, still will do a work if you're willing? I didn't get that for a long time. I had to be entertained by whoever was preaching. And I remember showing up to church and being all mad. Pastor Gerald's gone again? Who let that guy have vacations all the time? Man, I'm going to need to have an appointment with him. I expect when I come on a Sunday to him to be here teaching. Now, who's teaching? Merle. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I got to sit through Merle teaching? Oh, don't make, me, don't make me listen to Merle. Or, oh, it's Bob? Oh, Bob. Oh, great Bob. I did come to hear Gerald. And I gripe and groan all the way in. <clears throat> Do you know that God has a sense of humor? Because it wasn't all that long before Pastor Gerald was asking me to do it. And I could see the fellows in the parking lot doing the same thing. Where's Gerald? He's gone. Who's speaking? Jackie. Oh, man. You've got to be kidding me. They're letting the football coach preach? Man, I'm going home. I'll see you guys later. <clears throat> God has a sense of humor. God's word, it will accomplish that to which it is sent. Hey, God's going to do his work. We want to receive his word like it truly is God's word. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sin, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Do you hear what he's saying? Hey, you guys are imitating the church. Like the church in Jerusalem. You know, all the Jews are persecuting that church, just like your brothers are persecuting you here. What, did it, what was it that, that the Lord laid out for us? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Shall suffer persecution. That's what he's saying. 
hey, you're imitators of all the other churches, just like they're suffering from other people you are. You're going through those same things. The Bible tells in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and no temptation has overcome you except such is common to men. And with that temptation, the Lord will be faithful and give you a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. What's that mean? That means uh, that rain falls on the evil and the good. We all get touched by all that stuff. And it's okay. That's part of the road God's called us to. That's all right. It doesn't mean God doesn't love us when we suffer. It doesn't mean when we're persecuted that God's angry at us or that we're getting a whooping. It just means that's what happens when you want to live for the Lord. It's okay. Rather, Paul would write, we glory in tribulation because we know that tribulation produces patience and patience produces character and character hope and hope does not disappoint for the love of God is poured out in our life through the Holy Spirit. So we want to have that attitude. This is what Paul's talking about. Hey, we want to develop within us strong leadership. That needs to be our outlook, our, the way we see things, the way we understand suffering and the things that we face. And then he says, hey, it's stored up for them. Wrath is being stored up for those guys. What's he talking about? Paul says the same thing in the book of Romans. Hey, they store up for themselves wrath. They're rejecting God. They reject God, and all they have left is wrath. You either receive the love of God and be with the Lord, or you will receive the wrath of God. The wrath of God we don't have to bear. It was poured out upon His Son. He paid the price for us that we could stand before God righteous and holy. So we have that opportunity, but when we reject they store up for themselves wrath. That's what, that's what takes place in that rejection. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for, for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly, eagerly to see your face with great desire. Remember, he was there three weeks before he got kicked out of town. He's saying, man, we were having a good time with you guys, and all of a sudden, man, we got chased out of town. And we desired to be with you. We wanted to spend time with you. We had this desire to be in that place. But in verse 18, therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But Satan hindered us. You realize that there's a real spiritual battle takes place in our lives every day. The Lord laid out for us that Not only do we have the battle within ourselves of the flesh and the spirit, but there is a real enemy who really wants to hinder you. Well, how's he do it? Why, you know, he puts on that really important football game on Sunday morning. Man, my team's playing. Hinder? Sure, sometimes that hinders it, don't it? Or that really good TV show on Wednesday night. he hinders us or he puts in that problem you know you're just getting ready to leave and go to church and that's when you and your wife have a fight ah we were headed to church but man we had this brawl (laughs) where'd that come from it's not because your wife or your husband is your enemy 
But it's because the enemy wants to hold you back, to stop you, to hinder you, to keep you from being able to move forward. Paul says, man, I want to come. But the devil, he just shut in the door. Now, ultimately, is the devil able to do anything God doesn't allow? Nope. Nope. Anything that touches our life passes through the hands of a God who loves us. Whatever we face, now that may be from the devil intending to destroy us, but how does God intend it? God meant it for good. Devil means to destroy, God means to improve. The devil means to wipe you out and make you quit, sift you like wheat. Isn't that what Jesus told Peter? But Jesus said, I prayed for you, Peter. And after you fall, and when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. And that's what Peter did. Anybody can quit. But a real man, a real leader, stepping forward for the Lord, man or woman that wants to be used of God, they'll get knocked down. The test isn't whether or not you can get knocked down. It's how hard can you get hit. And get back up. Say, nope, that don't stop me. What shall we say then? Shall persecution and tribulation, shall death, nakedness, peril, or the sword, shall any of those things separate us from the love of God? No. Nothing separates us from that love. Not a thing. So Paul laying this out, hey, Satan means to stop me. God allows it because God has places that he wants to direct Paul and to take Paul. But Paul's saying, my heart was to be with you. I love you like a mother. I want to comfort you. I want to throw my arms around you, tell you it's all going to be okay. I love you like a father. I want to exhort you. I want to comfort you. I want to challenge you. But I have to do it in a letter because I'm not going to be able to be there with you. And then he says in verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? What's our hope and our joy? John would write in his epistle, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk with God. That's what. Paul saying, hey, what's our hope and our joy? That we're all going to be together with Jesus. And it's not that my kid's going to have the nicest house or the best car or a great job or he's going to have good success in school. I hope all those things are true. But more than I desire all that stuff for my children, I desire that they spend eternity with Jesus Christ. More than anything else. And if that means their life has to be upside down for a time, so be it. The most important thing is my children spend eternity with their Savior. And when God looks at us, that's the most important thing to Him in regard to you. So when we face those struggles and trials and difficult things, we need to realize, hey, God allows this in my life not to destroy me, But he brings into my life what is necessary for me to reach him. 
Just like Jim Elliott wrote, through the gates of splendor into the presence of Almighty God. That's his desire for us. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote. Well, I guess we say that for a later argument. What the writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 12. (laughs) It says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know you have need of endurance in your walk with the Lord, in the race of your life? You have need of endurance. And how do we do it? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for what? The joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider Jesus. What he did. And why did he do it? For the joy set before him. What joy? Man, I'm going to spend eternity with George. I'm going to spend eternity with Fritz. I'm going to spend eternity with Kathy. I'm going to spend... We're the joy, guys. It's us. You were on his mind. John chapter 17 was a prayer Jesus uttered on the way to the garden of Gatshmone, to Gethsemane. As he went to Gethsemane, the oil press, he prayed for you, for you. For the joy set before him, he endured the the cross, despising the shame, and has seated at the right hand of the Father. So when we're discouraged, like Paul, we want to be those who can go into the harvest field and gather that harvest for the Lord. Then Paul said, hey, what's our hope? Our joy, you are. You spending eternity with Jesus. That's our joy. For you, in verse 20, are our glory and our joy. For the joy set before. That's what carries us through. Laying out as we take a look. As we take a look at how this church was on so much fire in its first year, the year after Paul left, man, they're cooking. This is probably the first epistle written, period. First Thessalonians. And here this church is just cooking. They're on fire. We see that that the things that God was working out in them last week, this week we see Paul saying, hey, it's all about this this concept of leadership that I brought to you and that you are multiplying that and you're going out and accomplishing the same thing. And God does His work still that way through us today. We just make the decision. I receive the Word of God as it is in truth. Not the Word of men, but the Word of God. And in it, there is life. Life more abundantly. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we just come before you, Lord. And we just ask, God, that 
Indeed, you would move in a mighty way tonight. Father, as we just seek to honor you as we have a time of prayer and a time of worship, Lord, we ask that, Father, the the things that you've provoked us to this evening, the way that your word has, has touched our hearts individually, Lord, we ask that you would enable us, that you would equip us, that you would help us, Father, just in these few minutes that we set aside to enter into your throne room truly, to experience all that you have for us, Lord God. Father, we pray that you would move among your people in a mighty way as we lay this before you now. In Jesus' name, amen.